The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. This week, we are joined by a super special guest, the winner of the U.S. Games Workshop Tampa Open, Jeffrey Kolodner. Jeffrey, how are you doing? Doing great. Um, Say happy to talk to you. I'm super excited to have you. I think our fans are as well. You had a pretty miraculous run going 9-0 at the Games Workshop Tampa Open, beating three Art of War players and, and doing so with an army that I don't think anyone even had on the radar. Sisters of Battle. I think we ranked them in D tier in our tier list. I think like no one was really even knows what this faction does, to be honest. like It is so out of left field, Jeff. How did you even... like? This is the whole story, right? We're going to unpack exactly how you did this in part one over here what is the list you took how it works what is your play style and all that good stuff and then in part two which is going to be for our subscribers you can check that out on aow40k.com that's where we're going to unpack exactly how you made this happen on the tabletop where you put the models what tactics you used and all that juicy juicy info are you ready jeff absolutely i'm super excited first let's get to know you a little bit how did you get into warhammer uh yeah so uh i got into 40k quite a while ago i want to say in the Early 90s. Uh, it was the end of second edition, and I had a family friend who had two armies, and he's, he invited me to try it out. Uh, so he had a bunch of you know gorgeously painted beakies, blood angels, just you know the really classic second edition army, and then he had a whole bunch of space orcs. And so uh, I was going to play the space orcs. I wasn't initially sold because uh, I was a fantasy player at the time. I played fifth edition fantasy uh, when I was like five or six, and I really kind of was into high elves. Uh, but the orcs that really won me over was he gave me a dreadnought that was basically a trash can on legs, and then he gave me a war boss who was this little guy, giant, giant pirate hat, this big, big smile, and a giant cigar. And I said, all right, you sold me. Uh, this game seems awesome. Uh, I proceeded to get slaughtered for that game and then most of third edition as I played orcs and sort of fell off of 40k as far as playing the game as I went into later editions. But I, I always loved the world and the setting. And I would often joke that if they ever release Plastic Sisters of Battle, I'm going to buy a box. And uh, I figured I was safe that GW would never do it. But little did I know, GW was going to do it and they were going to do it in style. So when the new Plastic Sisters range came out, I was like, these are just amazing models. I'm a man of my word. Uh, so I got some, and I started playing, and I got immediately hooked by the way sisters play. And I've been with them all the way through ninth and into 10th, sort of never taking a break. So you're like a diehard sisters player. One of the things I noticed when I was reading your list is you named all of your units, like your characters and stuff. They have their own little names with that. That is not something you typically see at the top tables of competitive Warhammer. What's your what's your affinity with sisters here? Um, I, I love their lore. Uh, I think that they're just really fun. They're a really interesting faction because they're a faction with a whole lot of contradictions. Because on the one hand, they're one of the most you know, unforgiving and merciless factions out there, you know, the degree to which they'll go after the witch. But at the other hand, they're also a faction that runs orphanages and hospitals and, and, and food kitchens for the poor. So they're one of those weird, you know, dualities of 40K kind of factions where they're both good guys and horrible monsters at the same time. And I find that to be really fun. Uh, their models, I think, are just gorgeous. I love the aesthetic, um, you know. And so it, it's one of those weird things where it's like, you know, I still love my space orcs and I still, you know, I like my Tau. I have a few armies, you know, I love my guard. But every time I go out to play, I keep saying, you know, what do I think is going to be the most fun for me? And it just keeps being sisters. 
Wow. So you kind of made this choice irrespective of the meta or what is necessarily the best thing. You just love your sisters and you took them out for a spin and somehow went nine and oh. So what is your practice regime like? Obviously, you must be a very talented player. How did you get so good? Uh, so my local shop uh, is what I would call aggressively casual. So the way that I practice is I just go to events. I just go to every RTT and GT that I can sign up for that's in the area that I can kind of fit into my schedule. And so I'll have months where I'll be going to an event every weekend, four events a week. I mean, four events a month, sorry. Uh, and, you know, I just, I love to play. I love to play this army. I just think it's fun. And so I've been playing, I don't want to say this exact list, but a slowly evolving list all the way from the start of ninth edition to now, it's been a sort of a steady lineage of sort of the same general concept the whole way through. Because uh, I started out as a Valorous Heart player. Um, well, technically order the minor order that counts as Valorous Heart without the uh, the relic. But basically that for the whole of ninth edition and just sort of steadily finding what I like and just sort of refining it the whole way through. And so my practice has mostly just been getting to events, getting reps, losing to really good players, um, and sort of learning what the army does and doesn't do that's really amazing like when you put it all out like that just the repetition over time getting better i think 10th edition more so than pretty much every other edition has really facilitated that viability the missions are so diverse and the amount of of ways to approach the game with the denser tables and different build options is higher than it's ever been so there there is room for a dark horse kind of style army like sisters to come in and take everyone off their feet how did you go about um I guess, playing Sisters from the beginning of the edition, it's brand new, Eldar's broken, GSC come back to life, you know, your army's not looking so nice and shiny. Um, yeah. what, where was your starting point? How did you develop this journey? So so, so basically, um, at the end of 9th edition, and as we got the information for 10th edition, um, I just kind of looked at what I had, and I said, I think most of this, you know, most of what I'm doing carries over. Um, I did lose a few units in the transition. I lost my normal Celestians. I was one of the few weirdos that was running them. And I unfortunately lost my Celestian Sacrosons because unfortunately, going with 3F save with them, they just are a little clunky to make work right now, which is a pity because I love the models. Uh, I have a whole bunch painted up, but a lot of my stuff just kind of translated over well, and a lot of it got better in the translation from 9th to 10th. Units like the Castigator, Basic Battle Sisters, uh, the Immolators, these are things that actually got better that I was already running. And so... While most of sisters were looking at the index, because most of sisters were Bloody Rose players, because that was kind of the favored way to play, um, most of them were looking at the index in despair. I was looking at it really quite optimistic. I was actually pretty happy when I looked at our index. Um, you know, there were a few things that, you know, everyone was concerned about Melts as only being strength nine. There, there's a, there were points where we were all like, I'm not sure how this is going to play out for us, but... I was actually pretty optimistic uh, when I saw the index. And so I went to some GTs and, you know, I had a few hiccups along the way where I had to kind of learn how to respect custodies again, because in ninth, I didn't really have to. Uh, So in 10th, I had to relearn that skill. But the main thing was that I would go to events and I would lose to Eldar by five to 10 points in a game a couple times. And that would be where I would get my losses at these GTs. And I would feel like, you know, as soon as Eldar gets reined in just a little bit, I think this faction actually has a lot of staying power. You know, I didn't really get the chance to test it before Tampa, but turns out it does. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the proof is in the pudding with it, but it's it. I just can't believe that you were able to look at this this index that pretty much every player that I know universally has been like below average. What is this? Why did they do this to this beautiful army? And you're like optimistic about it. So what is there to be optimistic about? Talk to me like I'm someone who doesn't really know sisters because in all okay. sincerity, I really don't. I'm very here. Yeah, and so all right, so right off the top. 
everyone knows fate dice are good, right? Like everybody knows fate dice are good. Well, we have better fate dice. And so that right off the bat was something that I was just, Miracle Dice got way, way better from ninth to 10th edition. Like that was the first thing that I saw. And I was like, our Miracle Dice got massively improved. Uh, we get a miracle more of them. Now, what's the mechanic for that? So the way that they work now, so the way they worked in ninth was you would get one at the start of the turn of your turn, and they eventually added it so the opponent's turn would count as well. And then you would get them every time you kill a unit. And you could only use one per phase for your whole army, unless you took some expensive war gear that nobody wanted to take, because there were also some sequencing issues with that. So it was kind of clunky and difficult to get very many of them. And there were certain matchups where you just wouldn't get very many. Like if you were against knights or custodies, you just wouldn't score very many miracle dice. Uh, Now you get them every time one of your own units dies. So that immediately puts it in your own control, how many units you're going to take that will allow you to get miracle dice. And then one of the most upgraded units Basic battle sisters now generate miracle dice every time you control an objective with them. So one squad of battle sisters stretched over two objectives can score you two bonus miracle dice at the start of your turn, and that adds up very very quickly when you start having you know more because your you know your small units are dying and trading and giving you miracle dice. You have war gear that allows you to recycle them. You have you know character that lets you reroll them. You have ways to spend them for bonus effects, and you can then get them by by controlling parts of the board. All of a sudden. You have a whole lot of resources just kind of on standby. And then the best part is now you can spend one per unit in each phase, meaning that you can now spend them much more freely without worrying about blocking yourself later in the turn um, where, you know, oh, I might spend one now and then I might really need it later. So I would have games that would go by where I wouldn't use them very aggressively because I'd be worried that I might need it later. And 10th edition just totally broke me free, so I don't have to worry about that. So that was a humongous boost to the army. Um, our detachment rule was kind of an That is amazing. That was a huge change. It really is. And, and the detachment rule, I think I also come out a little differently from uh, other sisters players. Um, because I think in large part, I realized because we're going to squads of 10, that we didn't really have a choice about going to squads of 10. Um, the whole getting a bonus for being below starting or below half because the way the sisters one works is if you're below starting you're plus one to hit and if you're below half starting strength you get plus one to wound um and a lot of people looked at that and said okay our detachment doesn't do anything because sisters just die but um i've found especially with the ap getting squished a little bit uh which was i think one of the best things gw did for this edition and i pray they stick to it um is that you actually do tend to have some stragglers from your squad surviving, especially if you have things like miracle dice to let you make those last couple, you know, make that last save to keep, you know, three bodies in the squads. That way you still have your special weapons. Uh, You actually can actually get a lot of value out of the detachment rule. Um, And so I still, you know, I was a Valor's heart player. I love it. I've always played a sort of a shooty, surprisingly durable sisters army. Um, but with AP getting squished, I kind of got that Valor's Heart effect just kind of baked in. And then I got this new Martyred Lady bonus just sort of tacked on top. So for me, my army is similarly durable to how it used to be. It's a little weaker to Mortal Wounds and things like that, but it's not so much weaker than it used to be. Uh, and so now I get to just get this bonus to my output that I didn't have in 9th edition. Um, whereas with Bloody Rose, you know, if you're taking all these melee units... You, you suffered a massive reduction in output because your attacks went down and your strength went down and your AP went down. And so if you were playing that style, it's just it's such a shock to the system. I'm, I'm not surprised that a lot of Sisters players were really down on the index because 
what they liked to play really is unfortunately dead and buried until the codex comes out. So help me understand what exactly a sister's army is trying to do on the table. I definitely get the concept of, you know, miracle dice make all my army much more efficient. I have reliability where I otherwise wouldn't, no failure points and charging or things like that. Um, Being able to substitute die rolls, uh, Eldar is good for a reason, right? And yours are so much more free. But maybe this is a good time to maybe segue into what your list for Tampa Open actually was. And then you can break down kind of what it's trying to do on the table. Sure. Um, so would you like me to just go down the list or would you like to go thing by thing and ask me, you know, what it does? No, why don't you, you just do read through it top to bottom so we have a frame of reference and then we'll ask you some questions from there. All right. That sounds good. So just to, to not confuse anybody, I'll use their, uh, their canon names rather than, rather than mine. So we have the Magifier to start with the Litanies of Faith Enhancement. Uh, we have Junith Arita. We have Morvan Vall as the Warlord, because she has to be. Uh, we have a Palatine with the Blade of St. Eleanor. We have St. Celestine. We have three squads of Battle Sisters. Each one of these has a multi-multa, uh, a combi weapon, a power weapon on the Sergeant. Uh, just sort of the full war gear loadout. The special weapons, uh, I had one Melta Gun, one Flamer, and one uh, Stormbolter for each of the squads. So they each had one different special weapon. I had two emulators. Uh, one had the twin multi melta and the other had the emulation flamers. Uh, and then I had two castigators, and they were identical uh, with the battle cannon as the chosen turret weapon. I had two death cult assassins. I had two mortifiers with the anchorite sarcophagi and the twin heavy bolters. I had one squad of paragon warsuits. I gave all of these multi meltas and grenade launchers, and then I gave two of them maces and one of them a blade. I had the retributor squad uh, with all multi meltas. I had one squad of Seraphim equipped with all pistols, hand flamers on the special weapon girls, and a plasma pistol on the sergeant. I had the Novitiate squad with all of the war gear, basically. So two flamers, a banner, and a simulacrum, and the rest of them had close combat weapons. And I wrapped it out with a Calidus assassin. Beautiful. Looks, uh, when I was reading through your army doing my weekly review, I was like, this is the most honest 40k list I think I've ever seen in my life. It's just like a little bit of everything. Awesome looking Battle Force style army. And the fact that it's sisters means I know it's not up to like any shady, teleporty, unkillable nonsense. You know, it's just going to be units played well doing their thing. And that's what makes it so impressive to me. So, Jeff, I just want to know. What in your terms, like what is a typical game plan for this army? Like, what are you trying to accomplish here? So, as you said, I think that was really a great way to describe the army is that it's a very honest army. Um, it doesn't, it's not really trying to pull off one game plan at any given time. It's really focused on adapting to the opponent and having a wide range of tools available to deal with a variety of matchups. So, uh, I want to be able to shoot well enough that I can punish world leaders. And I want to be able to fight well enough that I can punish Tau. I want to be fast enough that I can catch up and, you know, avoid things like Death Guard. But I want to be durable enough that something like Eldar can't table me in one turn. So basically, the goal is to not have any glaring weaknesses, even if I don't have any massive strengths. Uh, and then to just try to play to my opponent's weak points rather than try to contest their strengths. Which, you know, is very sort of high level and sounds really sort of like, you know, oh, well, that sounds great, but how on earth do you do that? And I think a big part of it is that the the list really is fairly redundant. Uh, there's no one unit that can get knocked out that just takes me out of the game. And I think that's probably the biggest strength that the list has, um, is that all of the parts of the army, while they work really well together, none of them are completely relying on the other parts of the army to function. And that, I think, is a big a big part of how the army likes to play because the army wants to be able to look at any given table and say, all right, I'm going to put these units out there to try and score points. I'm going to put them in harm's way in the hope that 
um, they'll be able to, you know, have some survivors, get me some points, and then the next wave will be able to step in, trade effectively, um, and kind of keep doing that um, at sort of a steady pace where no one part of the army is having to, you know, carry the whole game on its shoulders because a good opponent can be able to pinpoint what my weak point is and just take it out. And sisters aren't an army where you can have any one unit that will survive anything. Like the, there is no unit in the index that you can rely on to survive. If an Eldar player knows killing that unit will win him the game, he's going to kill that unit. Uh, there's just no avoiding it. Uh, and so I think for sisters, I think the biggest part of the list is it's got some of that redundancy and it, it has a lot of little things in it that let it, um, sort of play into a scrappy late game that it really likes. And so I think the way that I approach the games, I try to put a few small, somewhat disposable units out early. Um, you know, they're threatening enough that the opponent really does need to deal with them, things like the mortifiers. And then I can sort of evaluate how they're playing from there. And then I can either kind of put my foot on the gas and say, I'm going to give you a lot of things to deal with right away. Or I can say, all right, you're being very cautious. You're being very cagey. I'll play the same style of game at that point and hope that I can kind of outlast you. So I think the real trick to the list is always being flexible, never coming in assuming that you're going to beat anybody, because honestly, uh, sisters are an army that if it goes bad, it can go bad real fast. So you just have to be ready to just go in and respect every opponent you're up against and play a really honest game of 40k. And in the late game, um, Miracle Dice can make such a huge difference that sometimes you can kind of pull it out in unlikely situations just by pushing the, the, the odds in your favor at those last moments. Um, so I think that's kind of the main main goal. Yeah, awesome. Looks like a, a really great description there of the high level kind of play to your opponent. Do you be a little bit of everything? It's very fluid. Like when you describe the play style, imagine like the water bender type of type army, you know, mm -hmm. be where your opponent's not, do that kind of thing. Um, it's which, very reactive. Very reactive. Yeah, it'll make for an amazing part too where we go through matchup by matchup. How do you approach it? Because I'm sure the tempo, the pace, and which units you use for which job really vary based on each game, like you said. But let's talk about kind of list theory for a moment. I'm relatively uneducated in the Sisters of Battle in 10th edition. So let's kind of walk through your army list line by line now and, and dissect what each unit is doing for you. So the Imagifier with Litanies of Faith, what, why is she here? This is one of two units right before Tampa that I kind of switched into the list uh, that both of them ended up being kind of superstars for me. And the Imagifier is one of them because basically what she gives me, um, a lot of folks right when it came out were really focused on the Dialogus and the Triumph. Because that gives you a unique interaction that's kind of kind of ridiculous, where the triumph and the dialogus can basically just automatically say, "Here's a bunch of sixes on multi-meltas, make invulns or die," which is a pretty ridiculous thing to be able to do. But it is kind of expensive, and I felt like good opponents were going to be able to recognize that threat and target one of those two units and kill it. Uh, so I was looking for ways to make my my miracle dice more reliable. In the last two GTs that I went to, I was ending most of my games with between, I want to say, 7 and 15 ones and twos, just sitting in my miracle pool, not doing anything. And I was like, I need to do something with these. Um, and so I was just kind of looking through the index, and I saw the, the Imagifier, and I read her abilities, and you know, she gives a 4-up invuln to the squad she's leading, which I forgot about in 8 of my 9 games at Tampa. Uh, but I did remember on the game against Jack, and it did matter, so that was still a useful ability. Um, <laughs> but the other ability she has is huge, which is... If a unit dies within 12 inches of her, you can re-roll the die they create when they die. Uh, so you, that miracle can be re-rolled. So all of a sudden, you have two shots for every unit that dies of getting a good miracle die. Yeah, and I was like, this is so affordable. She's so cheap. She's 45 
uh, or 35 points base plus a, an, an enhancement, which I, I forgot the second half of the enhancement for all of Tampa. Um, but the enhancement lets you reroll one miracle die in your command phase or three, if she or the unit she's leading are below, you know, the half strength point. Um, and so I had forgotten that the unit being below half strength would trigger that. And so I was waiting until she was injured to trigger that. That was one of the few things I forgot that I was like, oh, this is, um, cause I also forgot that Celestine was down to five wounds, but she was never alive in any of my games on one wound. So it wouldn't have changed anything, but it was one of those things where it's like, oh, right. She did change that. So yeah. lots of those the little transition part- points, um, kind of come up that, you know, you have to learn when you're going through addition to addition. Um, but especially with an army you've played so much that it's kind of become muscle memory. Uh, sure. But yeah, so so the Imitrifier is actually kind of a little a bit of an MVP. She's very unassuming. She's just a lady with a statue on a stick. Uh, she kind of blends in, um, but I do try to point her out for my opponents. And her main thing is she just joins a squad of battle sisters. She gives them that invuln, and she's able to just kind of take a place near the middle of my army and just early on in particular... It helps that miracle efficiency that you're going on about. So I love that. Um, So great utility unit. What about the the rest of your army? So you have like three squads of battle sisters. That kind of makes up the core. What are they doing for you in most scenarios? So for the most part, they're standing on objectives and bringing in uh, points and miracle dice because they're OC2, they're moderately durable, and they give me bonus miracle dice. The next thing they do is they all have a multi-melta in the squad. So once one member of the squad has died, those multi-meltas are back to hitting on threes. And even though they only wound on a five, I can either miracle a wound roll or just fish for trying to get one through. And then if they fail an invuln, that's potentially eight damage. And so if you have that in all of these different squads, it's hard to actually remove those multi-meltas because you have to go through all ten bodies. And even though... Throughout your army. Yeah, and so even if you kill two, or even if two multi-melts fail to wound you, if the third one gets through, I just did eight damage and Angron's down at half health. And that's kind of the, the concept there, is that like I want to make it so that you have to actually finish off my units, even though you really don't want to have to allocate more attacks to finishing off that unit. You, know, you want to just maim it and move on. But with, with this army, you have to kill it off, and that makes, it, makes you sort of inherently inefficient, because if you only dedicate one or two attacks... I might just roll those three up saves and then you wasted your time. Um, Whenever I see units that like punish you extra hard for not finishing them, this is typically units that regenerate, but in your case, units that get better when they're damaged. One of the tactics I like to think about with using with them is to put just a couple models out in the open and then the rest of them out behind a wall. Your opponent shoots and then you're now below starting strength or below half strength and the remainder of your squad can go out next turn and be super effective. Is that anything you employed in your games? Uh, I would do that from time to time, but typically what happens is I just poke out with the multi-melta. And so technically they could keep shooting me, but as the squad gets smaller, they're less and less wanting to shoot me uh, because they're still trying to chew through all these three-up bodies and cover, and they keep feeling like it should be dead already. Um, and that's one thing I've noticed is a lot of times people kind of underestimate what they need to use to kill sisters. So they'll be shooting in and they'll be like, this should be dead already. And there's always this threat. Uh, sisters have a strat where if you shoot a unit and you kill any models, I can shoot back for one CP. Um, and so if you cut me down below half, all of a sudden I'll shoot back and I'll hit you on threes and I'll probably wound you on a four or a three. And, you know, it, it can become this weird thing where they really don't want to keep poking it unless they have enough firepower to finish it off but then if they do that they've spent a lot of time killing this one squad out of cover so there's this weird kind of dichotomy that that you'll find where people are trying to find the best way to efficiently clean up multiple things at once 
I'm glad you you brought that up because it's basically it's not really a threat overload because I don't think you're necessarily pressuring your opponent too hard with this army, but there's threats everywhere, and it's hard to actually dig any meaningful damage out of it. Um, especially when I look at the fact that it's not just 30 sisters standing on objectives, contesting points and all that. You have a lot of vehicles in this army, too. Two castigators, two mortifiers, yep. the the Paragon Warsuit unit, and the emulators. How does that mobile vehicle element play into this army? So, so yeah, a big part of the army, um, like, uh, I think a big thing is, like, with the emulators um, are a good example of this. They give me a lot of mobility that sisters traditionally don't have. Um, the ability to move and then disembark is, I think, one of my favorite changes from 9th to 10th. Um, I think it opens up a ton of really interesting playstyles for a variety of armies. And Sisters are definitely one of the armies that I think benefit a lot because, particularly with the emulator having the fire support role that I think is very similar to what the Falcon has, uh, you have this really cool ability to stage a squad of infantry inside of a transport and then use them almost as a sort of a strike point for that vehicle. They're, they're basically part of the vehicle's loadout where the emulator will zip forward, it'll drop the squad out, and it'll tag something, and then those that, that squad will go into it with full rerolls to wound. And so even if I miss with half of my multi-meltas, because they're only hitting on fours when they get out, um, those four remaining wound rolls will all be full rerolls. And so even if they're only wounding you on a five, um, that's actually not terrible odds of getting two to three wounds through and forcing some saves. Yeah, that's not bad at all. And, then, and tanks are not easy to kill either, and they're great for um, you know just dropping off infantry into spots to move block or contest objectives or anything like that. I'm surprised we're not seeing any rhinos for these large sister squads, actually. So the reason that we aren't primarily is because they both have a character attached to them. Uh, so I'll have three squads of sisters, and one of them is going to be... So the emulator has one more special rule that's really cool, is that it combat squads. If you have a 10-girl squad, you can combat squad it using the emulator. So I'm able to end up with four squads of battle sisters. So I've got two squads of five and two squads of 10. Uh, and the two squads of 10 come with characters attached that want to be on the board to use their utility abilities, which is why I don't put them in transports. Makes a lot of sense, yeah. So just the characters kind of don't want to be in transports, so don't bother with it. Let's talk about the Castigators. What, what, what's appealing about a Castigator? I'm, I'm used to seeing a lot of Exorcists. Indirect Fire seems all the rage these days, but none of those here. So there's sort of two trade-offs with the Exorcist compared to a Castigator. I think that the Exorcist is a pretty decent unit. I think it has probably about 10 points more than it should be, but because it's Indirect Fire, that makes a lot of sense. But I think the thing is with an Exorcist is it's only AP2. So when you're shooting Indirect Fire, you're really only AP1 because of the cover. And so there's a decent amount of targets. And again, it's D6 plus two shots with a D6 damage gun. So you're kind of playing a little bit of a roulette game with the Exorcist. And then when you do bring it out to fire directly, the drawback that you're encountering is that it only has one heavy bolter at that point and the Hunter Killer Missile. Whereas when you have a Castigator, you have three Heavy Bolters, a Storm Bolter, and the Hunter Killer Missile. So the backup firepower is much more substantial. And then the main gun, uh, when firing directly, actually, I still think favors the Castigator, just because it has the full rerolls to hit against vehicles and monsters. So um, you've got some reliability. It's D6 plus three with Blast. And then it ignores cover, so it's always going to give you that AP1, no matter what you're shooting at, no matter where it is. Um, whereas you're only getting better AP for the Exorcist if you're shooting a target directly that's not in cover, which in 10th edition can be kind of hard to do reliably. So I've just found that the Castigator has less chance of just like a knockout blow than something like the Exorcist, but it just has a really good ability to chip damage into any target, uh, no matter how big or small. And so uh, a Castigator is not going to kill Angron, but a Castigator has decent odds of doing 
three, maybe five wounds to Angron, which, you know, is kind of helpful if you have multiple castigators working together as a team. You can actually wear down a lot of targets. One of the things I always find so fascinating with kind of these honest armies of 40k is like you just have some tanks in the open and like that's supposed to survive. There is some real firepower in the game out there. And that's, you know, I'm talking fire prisms and, and things like mm-hmm. that. How do you play? I, mean, I don't want to get super specific in the Eldar matchup or anything like that. But like, I'm just thinking about the Alpha Strike in general. There are some scary things in Warhammer. How do you Absolutely. play your army in the face of like the overpowered stuff? Yeah, so I think a good example of I think what makes Sisters' vehicles unusually sticky is the fact that they do have the six-up and vulnerable built-in, and you can miracle dice them. Uh, and so for things like Tau, Sisters are something of a nightmare if you're running hammerheads because if you don't get the dev wounds on your hammerhead, if I have a six in my miracle pool, you literally can't hurt me. And I think that is just such a huge... Like, even with things like a fire prism, I can have the damage the fire prism's doing to me if I just have a six in my miracle pool. Uh, or just roll a six naturally. Yeah, it just creates a lot more opportunities for you to block very powerful shots, which, you know, a lot of the big, bad, broken armies are like, here's my, maybe outdated, but here's my Wraith Knight Vibrism type gun, the real gun. Well, uh, yeah, well the, the Wraith Knight is a great example. Yeah. Uh, if it's not doing dev wounds, I can actually just block the huge hit and not worry about it. Yeah, and I'll reiterate that, like, vehicles are not inherently soft. Like, just being a tank yeah. is, is inherently defense these days. And the nice thing is all of these sisters tanks that I'm running are toughness 10. Uh, Rhinos are only 9, but these are all 10. And they have 11 wounds, which means that they just kind of barely squeak out that average where uh, two last cannons doesn't like really reliably kill them. Uh, So you kind of need that third to go in. Um, And so things with flat damage like a fire prism are a little more reliable, but anything that's rolling for damage actually does have to get two good damage rolls to knock it out in two hits. That's a great point. So let's talk about the rest of your character support staff over here. Uh, Morvenvald, Junith, Palatine, Celestine, what are all these ladies doing for you? Okay, uh, so Junith is pretty straightforward, uh, so I'll start with her. The only one more straightforward is Vol, but Junith, she gives me a command point, and that's the main reason she's on the list. She gives me a command point every turn, and sisters love to throw grenades. Grenades are awesome, and sisters love to throw them. Uh, We also don't mind tank shocking you. Uh, and we have some very good stratagems in our book. Uh, we have a stratagem that lets us stand a character back for one CP. That's huge, and there's a lot of ways to abuse that. Uh, we have a stratagem for plus one to wounded melee, which helps a lot when your strength is low. We have a stratagem that allows us to fight on death for two CP, which is expensive, but every now and then is a pretty good thing to threaten. And, of course, the core book strats are always good. And we have a strat that is very niche but when it comes up it's humongously powerful and in game nine i'll discuss this one in more detail but it basically allows us to pick our targets for our opponent when they're assigning attacks in the fight phase and that can allow for some pretty silly shenanigans and so we love having those command points uh junith is also an okay fighter she's got a heavy flamer and she does make her squad a little harder to kill with minus one to be hit but her main reason to be there is she's a command point every turn and that's just value uh, for the army. Uh, so the next one would be Vol. Why is she in there? Because she still hits hard and she gives the squad a Paragon's rerolls, and that is a legitimately threatening unit. End of story. Uh, Celestine is a very straightforward one in that she is fairly durable. Uh, her offense is incredibly swingy, as evidenced by her failing to kill two Chaos Spawn in the entire game against Jack, um, but her durability is still incredible, and her ability to come back in most games will be relevant, and she still is a deep-striking, objective-doing durable nuisance that you can insert into the opponent's battle plan which leaves us finally with the palatine who is basically the single hardest hitting melee thing in the sisters index 
character support lady? Uh, so she's just a little lieutenant. She's just a little sister's lieutenant, uh, but she can get access to a relic. So this relic can go on a cannon S or a palatine. And that relic is called the Blade of St. Eleanor. And what that does is that gives you plus one attack, strength, and damage, which is pretty good for a 15-point upgrade. But when you're wounded, it goes up again by another strength, another attack, and another damage. And so the difference between her and a uh, Cannon S is that she has four attacks base at two damage. Whereas the Cannon S, unfortunately, only gets three with the two damage weapon. So that unfortunately means the Cannon S is actually worse at melee, which is pretty unfortunate, but it is what it is. So... So the Palatine um, now can get this, this relic, and she becomes a damage three base with five attacks now, which is a pretty solid profile. But then she's got two special rules that further enhance that. Is one, if she's leading a unit, that unit has lethal hits, which means that it's easier for her to get through and do damage because she's only strength five. And then the second thing is that you can discard a miracle die in the fight phase uh, before she swings, and all of her wounds, the successfully wound, doesn't matter if they get saved, do a mortal in addition. So all of a sudden, you're looking at five attacks with lethal hits, and every one that wounds does a mortal wound, and then they have to make a save against a damage three attack at AP2. That is and, so good. How cheeky. Yeah, and then if she's ever injured, uh, you get another attack, another strength, another damage. And so an injured Palatine, if she were to roll perfectly, could one round a Dominus class knight. Which is I, I can't help but notice she has a plasma pistol listed on her data sheet there. Could could you maybe use a fate dice to roll um, one intentionally? Fortunately, you could not. Uh, a because you can't spend uh, miracle dice on your vol- your volatile your hazardous rolls, and two because she's only got three wounds. Oh, she'll, she'll just kill herself. So, yeah. She would just blow herself <laughs> up. Nice so idea. She's got that plasma pistol just because it's better than a bolt pistol. That's the only reason. Uh, that's uh, that's acceptable too. So your characters just add more to the whole idea of uh, tools for the toolbox, right? Celestine standing back up. Morgan Ball gives you an actual center point that hits hard. Um, the the Palatine even hits super hard. And then Junith adds command points while Magifier adds Miracle Dice manipulation. It all kind of comes together very nicely. Uh, just rounding it out, so you have a lot of one-of picks, which obviously means this is the list refinement after game, 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 game. That's the end up with that kind of stuff. So talk to me about these Mortifiers and the Seraphim and the Novitiates. What are they doing here? Okay, so they're, they're all kind of filling a different role. So I'll start with the simplest, which is the Seraphim. They're just a deep-striking unit that's pretty good at picking up chaff and annoying and harassing the backfield. Uh, they have that Eldar move-shoot-move uh, behavior similar to a Shadow Spectre. Uh, unlike a Shadow Spectre, they're restricted to 12-inch range pistols, so they're a little bit easier to play around. But at the same time, it is four hand flamers at strength four, so they're really, really good at going into something like a squad of cultists or some gene stealers and saying, hey, I'm just going to pick a whole lot of these up. And so that's a really sort of a handy little toolbox unit to have. Uh, the next one is the Mortifiers. And so these are interesting to me because they are on their own just good little value packages. They've got two heavy bolters. They have a decent melee profile. They're fairly tough and they're fairly cheap. Um, and when they die, they give me a miracle die. And so the thing is, as I can get these out there fairly early or up a flank to sort of score some points, do objectives. And if the opponent doesn't put a real gun into them, the opponent has a decent chance of just not killing them. Um, and if the opponent just ignores them, these things absolutely can run in and take eight wounds off your tank because they, they, they get sustained hits on the charge. So you can't ignore them. Like they, they have to be dealt with. And so they're just a good, cheap unit that I can use to harass, 
to add pressure and to sort of put things out on objectives uh, early on that if the opponent comes out and deals with them, I haven't lost too much. But at the same time, if they don't come out and deal with them, I'm set up to really go in and hurt something. Yeah, they look like little excellent skirmisher trade pieces. And if you ignore them, they actually pack a punch. Yeah, they're like baby dreadnoughts. Is I think the best way to describe them. I mean, in, in really every respect, actually. It's even got a little sarcophagus on the front. Like it's a baby <laughs> dreadnought. Okay, so what about these novitiates? So the novitiates were another just before Tampa add-on that I was trying to, because I had been running Dominions and I had been just consistently unimpressed with the damage I was getting out of them. Like they were useful to scout move the Palatine forward and get her in a position to hit something. But the problem was is that then it, other than that, they weren't doing anything. Uh, and so I decided, what the heck, I'm going to switch out these, these Dominions and I'm going to take these Palatines and these Death Cult Assassins. The Death Cult Assassins, I think, are just sort of pretty clear what they do. They're just a very cheap come in a corner and investigate a signal kind of unit. Um, though amusingly one that can kill light infantry surprisingly well. Um, but the uh, the Novitiates give me two things, really, is they give me a way to deliver the Palatine with reroll on the charge and 10 bodies to kind of give her something to trigger her lethal hits off of. Um, and the reroll charges gives her that sort of reliability getting somewhere. And then they also give reroll one to hit uh, all the time or reroll all hits if the target's on an on an objective. So with lethal hits and that Palatine, full rerolls to hit mean I can actually go fishing and looking for those lethal hits if I'm up against something big and scary like a, an Avatar or an Engron, something where I really need to be trying to proc those, those lethal wounds. And they also gave me 10 OC2 bodies that I could just charge in and flip an objective with. So it's kind of like a little sort of a double value combo. Very nice, yeah. Being very cheap for OC2 and giving those lethal hits is just great. So the last kind of things in the list that are basically two assassins glued together and then the death cult is the, the, the uh, Calidus assassin. I think we all know what the Calidus assassin does and why she's here, but what are these two death cults doing? Uh, as I said before, they're kind of there mostly just to walk on and investigate a signal. But the reason I took them over uh, like two crusaders, for instance, uh, was partially because I had the 10 points to spare. Um, that's the thing with sisters is there's a lot of weird little break points where not most of our units are about 10 five to 10 points different from each other. So swapping in and out becomes kind of a little game of tweaking across the whole list. Uh, but the other thing that they have going for them over Crusaders is because I think both of them, if they actually get targeted by the opponent, will die. I think that's just kind of the given. Uh, there are one wound model, uh, toughness three, two bodies. Like They're going to die if anything serious shoots at them. Um, but the one thing that the Death Cult Assassins have is they move an inch faster, so their seven-inch move, which every now and then helps, means you don't have to advance as far, stuff like that. And then the other thing that they do that is very rarely but sometimes useful uh, is they are four attacks a model, hitting on twos, and then precision, and then they're a power sword that rerolls wounds into characters. So if you're against like a Tau or an Imperial Guard player or something, and there's some character in a squad, if you're against a group of, I don't know, 10 Wraith Guard and a Spirit Seer, and these girls do fight first, um, and you just happen to go in and hit the spirit seer eight times and say, make eight saves, uh, that can sometimes be relevant. It's not common, but every now and then, that's just a neat little bonus value you can get out of your just little goofballs doing objectives. If you, if you have the 10 points floating around, you know, might as well make them combat relevant. Absolutely. So, so obviously it's a list that comes together. Some is greater than the individual parts um, kind of thing. Let's talk about secondary play and how it approaches primary, because at the end of the day, it is very squishy. So you're holding objectives kind of in midfield can be difficult. And then secondaries, you know, I have no idea what your options are because it kind of seems endless here. Um, what are your typical go-to plans for those? 
So, so typically for primary, um, the list, I won't say that it's amazing at scoring primary, but it's not as bad as it seems like at first glance, uh, just because of the number of bodies and vehicles and things that all of it can die. It just tends not to all die in one turn is kind of, I think the way I would describe it is that the opponent will kill a lot of my stuff, but they may not kill all of it quickly enough to stop me getting some points on the board. Um, and so that that's where it's like sometimes just having, you know, three units of little stuff, they have to figure out how to allocate their shots. And if they get unlucky on any of them, then one of them lives, the other two get overkilled. And they're like, well, I should have killed all three, but I didn't. And now I feel frustrated. So there's a little bit of that element for primary and kind of how I approach that, uh, where you have a little bit of redundancy where I can put a mortifier and, you know, tow on a squad of battle sisters. Now they've got these two irritating targets to, to remove before they can stop me scoring primary. Uh, secondary, I tend to rely on tactical, even though I'm not discarding for command points. Uh, the list is pretty well equipped to score most of the tactical secondaries, and I found it generally is not able to reliably get a 40 unfixed primary, uh, I mean fixed secondaries, just because um, a lot of them require speed that the army just doesn't have in enough numbers. Like, I have enough speed to score behind enemy lines once. I don't really have the speed to score that five turns in a row. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So you're you're not really marrying a specific movement-based plan because you're trying to opportunistically just kind of play the table. That also makes your army harder to predict and play against, which I imagine is definitely a portion of your victory. Do you find that your opponents don't really know what your army is trying to do and therefore they make more mistakes into you? That definitely is a factor. Uh, I think a lot of times folks uh, underestimate what they need to use to survive or to kill with sisters. They also tend to underestimate um, some of the tricks that I will explain to my opponents, but sometimes just hearing something isn't the same as experiencing it firsthand. So I may explain something like the fact that I can redirect their attacks, and sometimes people will still multi-charge me and set me up where I can avoid having them get the kill that they really wanted to get because they happen to charge a unit of doofballs who weren't doing anything. I'm like, all right, well, all your attacks go there instead. So there's an element of... Um, there's an element of that being an unknown that definitely is an advantage that unfortunately I think I'm about to lose. <laughs> I don't mean to do that to you, but I appreciate you coming on, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I lost it the moment I won. So I think at that point, everyone knew. That did, did you lose it or did you use it You know, at that point? I, I, I used it, uh, but now I'm going to have to get by without it. So. Well, we're only going to have to share the secrets a little bit more into part two. So, listeners, you can join us on AOW4DK.com. That is our Patreon. That's where we're going to explain exactly how Jeff moves his models, what secondaries he takes, and how he approaches the game in his given matchups. And as we've learned, it is such a reactive play against your opponent in the mission you're playing kind of army that you're not going to want to miss this one. You can check that out on AOW4DK.com. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. You've been an absolute pleasure to speak to, and your sister's knowledge is unparalleled. I'm so excited to do this part two. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. 